And what about those Palestinians in hospital who uh, are on life support and babies and incubators whose uh, life support and incubator will have to be turned off because the Israelis have cut the power to Gaza? Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's, what's wrong with you? Have you not seen what happened? We're fighting Nazis. We don't target them. Now, the world can come and bring them anything they want. If you want to bring them electricity, I'm not going to feed electricity or water to my enemies. If anyone else wants, that's fine. We're not responsible this is, for them. This is the point. But you this keep is the on, point. You, no, no, I, I want to tell you, no, man, no, listen, listen you no, listen to me right now. I've heard trying, you enough. No, no, I understand. I, we're trying to have a conversation a here. Listen, this no, is my you're, program. You're this is my show. Kind of, and I am asking the questions. You're raising your voice, and I've asked you, and we've already, we've already stopped, please, and let me finish. We've already distinguished between Hamas. I want to tell you, you're trying to speak over me. We are not, shame on you. It's nothing about shame. We're trying to have a conversation about a very serious situation here, and you are refusing to address it. jump over immediately, and again and again, you Absolutely not. You are incorrect. They are responsible, because I can tell you that when the UK... Absolutely when Great not. Britain was fighting the Nazis during World War II, no one asked what's going on in Dresden. Mr. Prime Minister, um, I'm grateful to be back in Israel in this incredibly difficult moment. If you'll permit me, um, personal aside, I come before you not only as the United States Secretary of State, but also as a Jew. My grandfather, Maurice Blinken, fled pogroms in Russia. My stepfather, Samuel Pizar, survived concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas's massacres carry for Israeli Jews, Indeed, for Jews everywhere. Welcome back. Another episode of Our Interesting Times. It is my pleasure to have back on the show Dr. E. Michael Jones. Of course, he's the editor of Culture Wars magazine, the author of uh, many, many books, um, The Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts, and of course, they just recently published The Holocaust Narrative, which I understand is selling very well, correct? That's right. It is selling well. Okay, it's, very good. I might come up. I'm sorry? It's a sign of the times. There we go. Yeah, so the word's getting out. Um, I'm, I had you back. I'd ask you back on the show now to discuss, of course, the current crisis in Palestine and Gaza, the um, and perhaps how this conflict, this latest outbreak of hostilities in that area, 
uh, is exposing the extent of Jewish influence and control of the West, the reaction of the West to this conflict. Um, first, we had uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken going over there supposedly to mediate or, or, or the, the conflict, but then he invokes his Jewish ethnicity, which doesn't inst inspire confidence <laughs> that, that the United States is an honest broker in this conflict. Um, so what say you? Yeah, I think that's exactly the, the issue. Uh, we have a Secretary of State who can't stand in front of a microphone without announcing that he has relatives who died in the Holocaust, which he did right after he announced that he was a Jew. He said he had relatives who died in the Holocaust. Interestingly, uh, you know, I've been talking about this for a while. You know that, of course, mm -hmm. a book about it. So the, today in The Guardian, an article appears and says that uh, Israelis should stop using the Holocaust to justify genocide in Gaza. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's <laughs> talk about uh, <laughs> uh, seeing your thoughts reflected in other people. I began to wonder, but th this guy, his name, his name is uh, Roz Siegel, and he's uh, head of, or uh, yeah, I think he's head of the Association of Holocaust Teachers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, these are people who make a living by talking about the Holocaust, and uh, they're uh, at least conflicted, if not upset, by this whole situation. But uh, I think there's a, a plausible explanation. If Blinken and his friends keep doing this, they're going to lose their job because nobody's going to take them seriously. And I think there, I think the the message here is that the uh, Blinken and company have overplayed their hand. Everybody's all the Jews are overplaying their hand at this point, uh, one way or the other. And if if he keeps using this uh, whole playing the Holocaust card, these people are going to have difficulty. Keeping order in the classroom. I don't know. That's the sense that I'm getting here. They're, they're, it's wearing out. Yes. Way, there okay, was a big pushback after this article. So I perhaps some editor probably already apologized for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Right. He probably got fired uh, for doing that. So, but anyway, it's it's significant to appear at all. Yeah, this is, of course, October 7th. It was, I think the attack was called Al-Aqsa Flood. I think the immediate cause of the attack was the, um, of course, the uh, raiding of the Al-Aqsa uh, Mosque where uh, Jewish settlers are harassing worshipers there. And, of course, the uh, IDF uh, uh, or the Israel security did nothing, kind of permitting it to happen, sort of a, a program, if you will, anti-Muslim program in Israel, which of which there are, are which were pretty frequent from what I understand. Uh, but nevertheless, obviously, this is a culmination of, of, of decades of, of humiliation, degradation. Uh, but we're told that it was um, it was unprovoked attack. Now, of course, the whole situation, the creation of Israeli state, and of course, the ensuing decades have been a series of one provocation after another, if you understand the history of it. And we're told that um, while the anything the Israelis do to the Palestinians, anything Jews do around the world, it's it's permitted because of the Holocaust. Anyone who invokes, say, Darya Sin or Napka or the humiliation of the uh, of the indigenous population, Arab population there, uh, of providing context, that's anti-Semitic. You can't. Yeah. We're supposed to believe that what allegedly occurred 80 years ago in Europe is irrelevant to the events in the Middle East. But apparently the everyday 
humiliation, degradation, and assaults that the Arabs suffer at the hands of Israelis is not allowed, is, is not contextual or relevant to the crisis there, which is, to me, rather ironic, but not surprising. Yeah, I think there's a double standard at work here. Do you do you think that's the case? <laughs> I've come to accept it as the standard. <laughs> I think it's the same people who said that when Russia yeah. did whatever it did in the Ukraine, that this was a war crime. Now they're doing worse in Gaza, but it's not a war crime anymore mm -hmm. because Jews are doing it. So I think that's the fundamental criterion here. If Jew, if if a Jew does it, it can't be a war crime. It can't be wrong, and blah blah blah. That's it's wearing thin, though. I think that there is an element of desperation that's kind of slipping in here. That uh, uh, attack on the mosque that you mentioned, I think, is a sign of desperation. Which these are settlers, right? Armed settlers, many of them. Call them civilians is sort of a misnomer or misrepresentation, misrepresentation situation. From what I understand, the settlers are armed and they're encouraged by the Israeli government to uh, uh, mete out violence to the uh, Arabs that they're dispossessing or forcing out. So even when the attack occurred, those that they may they may be calling civilians may indeed not be civilians. They are, by definition, combatants in the conflict because many of these territories are – this is land that's been constantly taken by Israeli settlers, an expansion that's been occurring ever since 1948, which is the source of the tension. I suspect if they went back to the 67 borders, sort of a modus vivendi could be struck and you could have peace. But this probably speaks to the problem of Zionism itself, which is inherently expansionist and doesn't really – uh, if you really understand our Zionism, the way uh, I read it is they simply don't acknowledge the rights of the Palestinians to have, hold any land in the area. And just, so this is just a one one another example of ethnic cleansing that's been going on since 1948. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I go back to what I said in the Jewish revolutionary spirit when the Jewish identity was created, when they rejected Christ and uh Killed the Logos incarnate. That's the Logos is order and order. Uh, the uh, justice is part of the social order. And these are all transcendental values that uh, belong to uh, a people who uh, adhere to Logos and they rejected them all. So there's no there's no uh, stopping people like this. It's like it's like uh, it only stops when it reaches an external object that is more powerful. That's simply the way it works. And that's the way it's working now. But even with that, with all of the, the support, it's, it's not going their way. It's not going their way. And uh, I think that, uh, I, I've said it before, but I, I think that uh, there's a specter haunting Israel now. And the, that came out when uh, a year ago, Ehud Barak said that no Jewish kingdom last, has lasted more than 80 years. Well, Israel's now 75 years old. And this may mean uh, may be the the cause of the uh, hysteria or the sense of urgency that these people now have about invading the the uh, mosque. Uh, they want to tear that mosque down. They want to rebuild the temple. These are it's purely apocalyptic here. The sense of we better do this within the next five years because we may not get a second chance. That's that's the, the thing that I see is informing this whole mood right now in Israel. This speaks to the domestic situation in Israel itself, which I, if I understand, the um, given the demographics, is sort of the religious orthodox or extremist, if you will, are getting more political power. And if I understand, Netanyahu himself is one way he's been able to avoid a prison cell is 
maintaining uh, uh, being prime minister. And he said he's had to strike a deal with these factions. I think it's a Jewish power party or something. And like yeah. Ben Gavir, these are radicals. These are extremists who who are I think are uh, mentally unstable, which probably is ref- reflecting reflected in the uh, in the government there, which is why we have the crisis now, I guess. Yeah. So how does this factor in with military strategy? It seems like a bad basis for military strategy, but that seems to be what's how, how why it's being driven in this direction. He has to placate these people who have uh, a, a kind of crazy view of their uh, entitlement, uh, a divine type of entitlement uh, that makes them reckless. And then there's uh, uh, military consequences. Uh, and I think that's what we're facing right now. It, it, Bl- Blinken, you know, showed up and basically sided with the Israelis. But what we're seeing here is there is kind of some kind of pushback now. Uh, the United States, the Pentagon just sent a general over there to try and explain to them that they will never really succeed if, in going into those tunnels uh, and getting rid of Hamas in the way they think they're going to. And so the big... The big uh, waiting game, or the big uh, waiting game, is now that uh, the ground offensive keep, keeps getting postponed, and it's postponed again now. The the general was supposed to go over and talk to them. Uh, there was supposed to be rain deluge that r- right afterwards. The tanks were all ready, and then they didn't go in. And now you have um, Secretary of Defense uh, Austin saying that they have to wait until they put these uh, anti-missile defense systems up all around uh, all around American military bases in the Middle East, because they are probably going to be the first thing to, uh, to be attacked if the, uh, if the Israelis go into Gaza on the ground. But I think there are other elements as well. I think that bas- basically Iran has said this is a red line, uh, Hezbollah, uh, will come into the fight if they go into Gaza on the ground. I think now Erdogan is making noises that he'll go in too. He could go in very easily. He could, he's got a big, the biggest army. I think it's bigger than the Israeli army. Uh, could go right in through Syria. Isn't Turkey a member of NATO? Yes. Whatever. <laughs> and they're busy in, in Ukraine, right? Got their hands full in Ukraine? Or at least not technically, but yeah, so at, the, at the same time yeah. that uh, they're making noise about this, um, Vladimir Putin announced that uh, he has these jets flying over the Black Sea carrying Kinjal missiles, and there is no defense against Kinjal missiles. And it seems to be, they've already demonstrated this in the Ukraine. The, the NATO has no way of stopping these missiles. So they use them every now and then on selected targets. You don't want to waste them because they're expensive missiles. But uh, they are, the aircraft carrier group is now within range of these Kinjal missiles and could be taken out. And at the same time, this is happening. You have Lindsey Graham saying that we should immediately attack Iranian infrastructure. Man, who's absolutely uh, one of the worst warmongers in Congress. A Congress full of warmongers. So it's an achievement to be that kind of the worst of the worst. So all you add all of this type of stuff up and everybody's kind of holding their breath waiting for the next shoe to drop. Like what's going to happen? I think that the United States, in spite of 
Blinken. Now, Colonel McGregor says Blinken is uh, running the war, but I think there's an element there that wants to hold back from plunging into uh, total engagement in a war that they can't win. I, I, don't see, I don't see how they're going to win this war. I don't see how they go, they're going to clear, clear out Gaza. They're good at bombing uh, you know, Gaza. Uh, that kills civilians. They're good at killing civilians. But when it comes to actually moving in, the, the bombing has now become counterproductive because the streets are full of rubble. Mm -hmm. it makes great hideout for Hamas. And it, it obstructs the ability of the tanks to move through the town. So if the tank gets bogged down, the, the, perp, the, the advantage of a tank is its mobility. If it gets bogged down in an urban pile of rubble, it's a sitting duck for Hamas uh, anti-tank missiles. And they've already shown how effective they are because, because uh, Hezbollah used them when Israel went into Lebanon in 2006 and they went 500 meters and they turned around and went back uh, uh, defeated. They, they simply thwarted them from going into Lebanon. So I don't think that anything's changed. If anything's changed, it's that there are Hamas and Hezbollah have more missiles than they had then. They're probably more accurate than they were then. And uh, they have better defenses than they had then. So I, this is the type of uh, counsel I think that that uh, general from the Pentagon is trying to give to the Israelis, but they're driven by uh, motivation that is not rational e in any way, shape, or form. Whether you're thinking of this specter of the 80-year kingdom, whether you're thinking of the immorality that they use in waging war, a complete flagrant violation of all the rules of war. Uh, it's irrationality. And that's not good for them. It may seem that way at the beginning, but it's not good for them because I don't see that they have a, a plan. I don't, I don't the, the plan that they have is not going to work. And I don't see that they have any other plan because no one can talk to them. No one can tell them no one can reason with them. Let's go to the heart of the matter. You can't reason with a Jew. You can't. Yet, yet they appear to control U.S. foreign policy. Um, I mean, Biden isn't making any decisions. He probably doesn't know what he, you know, he can't find his way out of a room by himself. But So Anthony Blinken, who would appear to be the one directing U.S. foreign policy, and which means that Tel Aviv or Jerusalem is really doing it because He's Jewish, and they're all Jewish. And that's apparently that matters a lot to Anthony Blinken. Um, He's in the Israeli war cabinet too. You know, I get these reports. Yeah. I don't have time to track them down, but that's a report that I got today. Whether he is or he isn't, he obviously has a close relationship with Israel because he's a Jew. Who's interested? Is he is he uh, uh, furthering in in the in the area? Then, right? Uh, that's a fair question, isn't it? Yeah. Who's whose interest does he represent? I don't see him representing the interest of the American people at all. And I think that this is one of the conclusions that the Biden administration has forced upon us. It's not just Blinken, it's it's uh, Merrick Garland, it's everyone. Mm -hmm. They Can a Jew represent the interest of the American people? Did you That's see um, supposed uh, two American conservatives, uh, Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin, threatening nuclear war? 
I guess this base they're alluding to the so-called Samson option. If Israel is cornered, uh, they they say that uh, uh, they'll unleash their the nuclear weapons that they are not supposed to have, but yet they do. <laughs> Again, reminder: the Iran, I'm sorry, Iraq, uh, Israel is not a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Does not conduct uh, uh, permit inspections and in these of these things, even with chemical weapons and biological weapons. Yet uh, we're told that Israel is our closest ally. We have to stand by them. Yet uh, here we have uh, even members of the government are threatened to use nuclear weapons against whom I don't know because none of their adversaries have nuclear arsenals. So I'm assuming they're they're referring to or alluding to the Samson option where they threaten to blow up European cities if they don't get what they want. Yeah, this is the Germans just delivered another nuclear submarine, which means it's probably targeting German cities. If you can figure figure out that what why the Germans would do that, that that's a requires a lot of thought but the same reason why they don't say anything when their pipelines get blown up i know so i guess it's in line with that type of thinking mm -hmm. catastrophe over there but the point is uh when is uh you, you when when is someone going to say that uh they've gone too far the the brink i think that there is an element in the military that's trying to persuade them that this is not even in their interest to do this but as I said, how do, how do you persuade an irrational person? Mm -hmm. what, what happened here is people like Ben Shapiro, I think, showed their true colors. He and Levine are supposed to be considered conservatives, aren't they? And Americans. And Americans. And it comes out that they have no interest whatsoever in America other than to use it as a supply for of weapons for Israel and uh basically lead the whole world into a war uh, in defense of Israel. Why does anyone consider this conservative? Why do they do that? I don't I don't I don't understand this. But that seems to be the case right now. So the question is, are we going to let these people uh, keep control? Even Ben Shapiro was, uh, was talking about having to exterminate these pieces of human excrement. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound good, Ben. I, when you talk like that, I I start to question your rationality. Well, uh, we're but, supposed to believe stories of you know forty beheaded babies and mass raping, and of course this is projection because I don't know um, when you shell a built when you shell a city and you collapse buildings and you um, you carpet bomb it. I'm sure that beheads a lot of babies, a lot of other people, and kills them in many different ways. Or white phosphorus, you know, weapons. Or when you impose a hunger blockade and starve people to death, where they die for lack of food, water, or medicine. I mean, that's not very humane either. I think if you're going to do a dead baby count, I think the there's far more of a of a of a, of a head count, if you will, or death count uh, in favor of Israel than is with Palestinians, with the amount of you know weaponry that they've expended. And that's in the in the just in the Gaza alone. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's projection, and I think the urgency of uh, destroying the mosque and rebuilding the temple has to do with two thousand years of accumulated guilt on the part of the. Yeah, well, when I, when I think of mass raping, I think of Ilya Ehrenberg in the in in Germany, World War Two. Right, you know. and of course he, I think he has his papers, and he has a special place in the uh, was the Vadyashem. Uh, 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 a museum there, I fully understand. Ilya Emberg was the Jewish propagandist for the, for the Soviet Union who encouraged uh, soldiers of the Red Army 
to uh, rape and pillage and rape everybody from eight to eighty, right? I think that was the motto during World War II. So again, we have another projection. And no, by the way, citation is there's no really evidence of any mass raping. I'm sure bad things are occurring. It's a it's a war, but some of these outrageous, lurid tales of you know, it's 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 right out of like World War One and you know, of course World War Two. These uh, the sort of this uh, uh, atrocity porn and gross exaggeration, you know that that we've we've become so accustomed to, and we're not supposed to question it either. No, no, and and at the same time, the the forty beheaded babies is starting to fade away as a a, a hoax. Uh, the uh, Hamas released uh, one of the hostages, an elderly uh, Jewish lady who then gave a press conference and she said they treated me very humanely. Mm -hmm. And the the story is now coming out that basically it, it, it is projection. What what is what is the reason for projection? It's unexpiated guilt because after the Jews after the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple in 70 AD, they had no way to expiate guilt. That was where you burnt animals. Uh, the word Holocaust goes back to that. Uh, you burnt the animals to expiate the guilt, and that was the Mosaic Covenant. And then when the temple's destroyed, you have no way of expiating guilt. So what do you do? You can't just keep it inside of you. And so the Jews perfected the idea of projecting it onto their uh, onto the, their victims. Uh, the Jew cries out in pain when he strikes you, is, I believe, a Polish proverb. And so what you saw is that exactly that in this recent uh, war in Gaza where the Jews are killing the babies, you know, because if you drop bombs on populated areas that collapse uh, apartment buildings, there are going to be children, they're going to be crushed in there. And that's, that's where the story came from. It came from the Jewish guilty conscience. And I think this is plaguing them. And that's why this, there's this uh, urgency to rebuild the temple so they can do the animal sacrifice again and expiate guilt, according to well, it, it won't work, but I mean, I think that's that's what's driving this. We have to have this final push, the final push. If we only could get rid of this and do this, everything will be okay, and it'll be smooth sailing from then on. This is the mentality, I think, in Israel right now. Yeah, yet, yet you have this same old reaction where, you know, their misfortune or anything misfortune or that befalls them or... Uh, Rather, uh, whenever someone attacks them or responds to their attacks, it's nothing they ever do. It's always unprovoked. That's sort of the narrative, meaning they never do anything wrong. Uh, they don't look back at the last 75 years and go, oh, maybe, you know, maybe the Palestinians, uh, the people that we dispossess to to create this country or uh, have, 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 have a legitimate grievance. Uh, but if you read the press, you think this is just a crazy terrorist who are bloodthirsty and they have they have no rational uh, you know a reason for what they're doing nor do they have any leg legitimate claim even if we just do a cursory look at the history you go oh yeah <laughs> it's like you know they've been treating the Arabs like dogs since 1948 even before the cycle of violence be I think begins in the 1920s when you have the emigration of a uh, of a uh, European Jewish com or Jewish communists from Europe coming to the country and and forming you know terror groups to uh, to harass and terrorize the uh, the native population, I think in 1922, the the era was 93 percent Muslim and Christian. 
Right. That, those are the demographics. They they need a sudden reversal on that, and they immediately they use terrorism in the in the thirties and forties. And after the war, with the Holocaust narrative, they got everyone to climb on board with that. That was a lot of other chicanery, bribery, blackmail, and threats, and all that. You know, there's a whole history there with yeah. You know, There's no question that it was terrorism. Yeah. You know, the ethnic cleansing, the murder of those men in Deir Yassin, and so on and so forth. There's no question that it was it was terrorism. They keep, uh, but they keep. I, has a Jew ever admitted that he did something wrong? Do you ever know of this? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, the the supreme leader in um, Iran recently wrote an apology about introducing birth control. He said it was the biggest mistake of his life, and he begged Allah for forgiveness. I don't remember. I don't ever remember a Jew apologizing for having done something wrong. I don't think they've they've ever admitted that they ever did anything wrong. Certainly, if the Israelis aren't going to admit it, who's going to admit it? I've heard them admit to atrocities, but but they're not admitting guilt. They're taking credit for it. I've seen documentaries where they talk about the massacres, the veterans of the forty-eight war. Where they uh, sort of brag about their exploits. Um, yeah, now I'm I'm projecting my Christian morality on them. No, but they're not they're not admitting guilt or that. No. They, I, I they they smile as they talk about it. This this was in that whole movie about uh, Nakam. It was called Plan A, uh, I believe, about the the Israelis who were, were going to go to Germany to Nuremberg and poison the water supply. Well, I thought that was an anti-Semitic trope. <laughs> that's poisoning wells so i've said this before it's a chapter in my book the holocaust narrative mm -hmm. and this movie was sponsored by the government of bavaria uh, bavaria is the most catholic area in germany uh, so <laughs> and i think they did it deliberately so as soon as the israelis left the room the bavarians broke out laughing and they gave each other high fives and Say we we finally we got a, the Jews making a movie that looks like makes them look like monsters and they don't even know it, which is pretty much like what uh, Inglorious Bastards was that Tarantino film. Gilad Osman said it was uh, Tarantino made it to make Nazis look good and Jews look bad. Yeah, you watched it actually uh, uh, identifying more with the Nazis than you do with the, <laughs> the Jewish terrorists in that movie. Yeah. So I think this is this is part of the problem. So you know, so Amy Wiesel's original Yiddish manuscript, the one that Moriac kind of transformed into Knight in French, uh, had passages where he bragged about raping the German girls. Uh, but that's okay. In Nakam, that that uh, terrorist group. They would, when they were going to commit a, a, an atrocity, they would always. Uh, talk up, talk up the Holocaust, and that would uh, uh, kind of calm their conscience. And then at that point, they were willing, to, they they were capable or justified in doing anything to the German people. And that's precisely what's going on here. So uh, along with uh, Ben Shapiro, who will say this is most Jew, more Jews died now than any time before the Holocaust. They have to invoke the Holocaust as justification for what they're doing. This rabbi, Dove Fisher, writes an article in uh, The American Spectator in which he says there are no innocent non-combatants in Gaza. You mean those women and children? No, there are no, because they voted for Hamas. Well, wait a minute, did, did infants vote in, in Gaza? 
you're saying that there is no this this boggles the mind how could you make a statement like that that a child is being held accountable because somebody in the city voted for someone and therefore that child deserves to die and we have no compunction about killing it this is a rabbi for god's sake this is a man of god who's saying this and then as if to make sure that you get the point he says it's the same thing as in dresden dresden voted for hitler and so therefore they deserve to have 300,000 people incinerated in, in with firebombing. Can you, can, can someone like this uh, possibly in, in any way be given any position of responsibility in, in any branch of the government? I mean, dog catcher. You wouldn't want your dog, the, the guy who's the dog catcher to have this attitude. This I'm saying the conclusion we have to draw is that, first of all, no one who has this moral framework should ever be allowed near any office of the government. And secondly, because the other issue is that they cannot represent the interest of the American people. They're constantly willing to sacrifice America for the good of the Jews. Is Doug, is Doug Fisher an American citizen? Or? Hmm? Is he an American? Doug Fisher? Yeah. I assume he is. I assume. Mm -hmm. Maybe. So, yeah, okay. So, again, we have just an example of these Americans, Jewish Americans, who have so much passion for protecting Israel, what they think is protecting Israel, and they're using the most savage means to do so. It, it seems to me that I question their loyalty, if, at the very least. And, and even dressing the stuff at the time wasn't celebrated, it was sort of hushed up. I mean, I didn't hear about it until I saw Slaughterhouse Five or watching. You know, the uh, the movie adaptation of the book when I, but when I was a teenager I said oh Dresden but it wasn't something that the um, Americans were particularly proud of no the the Holocaust was created to distract you from yeah. Dresden or the Rheinwiesen Lager or whatever it is the atomic bombs whatever it was that's mm -hmm. why it was great that was the American participation that was the American stake in this thing and they kind of handed it over to the Jews because the Jews controlled Hollywood. They the first propaganda film, Death Mills or Totus Moon, was directed by Billy Wilder, whose real name is Shmuel Wilder, a, a Jew from the, the shtetl who made it to Hollywood and was uh, became famous because that's that was the Jewish propaganda ministry. Well, if all civilians are indeed uh, guilty and therefore legitimate targets, uh, then it, it, it cuts both ways. How do they condemn you know, Hamas for shooting so-called civilians or whatever? It's, or even how do they even condemn the Third Reich for their alleged crimes You know, if everyone's an enemy? I mean, it's like just call someone an enemy and you can kill them? Is it, it's that simple? Is it? They're all enemies. Okay. So there's no like – Again, there's no logos, there's no objective truth or morality, or just what we want to, just the opinion of the powerful and what they want to say it is, you know. So, so there, there are no objective criteria uh, by which we can conduct a war according to principles, because one of the ironclad principles is you cannot uh, target non-combatants. If you can't establish that as a firm principle, then you can't let these people anywhere near a weapon. Yet they're being, uh, they're being, uh, uh, you know, uh, given massive amounts of aid, money from the United States to 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 uh, to prosecute this war. It's a, you know, it's a moral 
uh, illegal war. You know, um, the so U.S. The, you know is backing them. Part of the pushback was that there was this man in the State Department by the name of Paul who just resigned because of the way Israel is conducting the war. And he said he got lots of uh, support uh, after he did that, because apparently there's support in places like the State Department that feel that the way we feel. These people should, you should not give people, these people weapons. He said in his interview, he said, the new principle is if the weapons that we're sending out are more likely to do harm than good or more likely to target civilians or things like that, you shouldn't send them. Well, if there's ever proof that this is the case, it's Israel. You send the weapon. I think that the bomb, that bomb that went off and basically flattened the hospital, was an American bomb. It was uh, it was uh, detonated above ground, so there's no crater. But as you give them, you give Israelis weapons, and they immediately bomb hospitals. Well, now it's being reported that uh, I'm hearing reports that. Uh... That I Israel did it has been debunked, and then, of course there's no investigation. Although if you look at the evidence and if you look at the weaponry, Hamas doesn't have anything like it in their arsenal, from what I understand. So all, the obvious, you know, implication is it was Israel that did it because all the victims are Palestinian. They say they bomb hospitals. They say it's justified the bomb hospitals because everyone's guilty. All civilians are are combatants. And then when I think they initially bright an official with the uh, defense ministry claimed to credit for it, and then. Then they took the tweet down. And then they claimed that Hamas did it or something. It was like, you know. Then they claimed that they warned them. Yes. Which is it? You know. Which is it? Them. It's you know. It's uh. Yeah, it's um. You know, so but yeah, so America's complicit in this because, well, I mean, I don't think the public. If you look at it, the public, isn't really too gung ho about supporting Israel. I think the political class being bribed and blackmailed is is their their uh, support is almost unanimous. That's one thing that. Where the uh, the polling is completely completely different, especially as you get younger people, they're not as uh, brainwashed on the matter as say older generations are on this matter. So tell tell me about the feeling in your neck of the woods. Tell me about that. You know how how you, you live near the deep state. Tell me what they're thinking. You know, uh, I had a conversation. Uh, it's funny because I, I I run in Catholic circles and I knew a lot of Catholics who, who you could call them regime Catholics. And uh, they're not happy about it at all. But it's a point. What I've noticed is that despite you can have a lot of Catholics working for your deep state or your bureaucracy, but the 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 um, that agency will absorb the Catholics. Whereas when Jews work for these agencies, the Jews can uh, conform those agencies to their interests. Yeah. Catholics don't conform these agencies to their interests or their values. <laughs> they get absorbed by it. It's a completely different reaction. <laughs> Unfortunately, you would think there'd be a Catholic influence in this, but that's not the way it works. Yeah, that's that's right. That's what uh, Hesburgh said about Notre Dame. If you mm -hmm. let the Jews in, they take over. Uh, and the, the Catholics are taught to be docile and they're taught to be not impose their views and, and blah, blah, blah. But nobody teaches the Jews that. And so they get in and they take over. Look yeah, I mean, we, we had FBI, or is it Louis Freer Catholic? Yeah. Well, I mean, that did, right? Michael, uh, <laughs> Oh, whatever his name was, the head of the CIA. What was that guy's name? He was a Catholic. He showed up at, uh, I'm trying to remember his last name now. Oh, back in the 70s? No, it wasn't back that far, no. It was more recent. He okay. Showed, he showed up at Notre Dame and gave a talk, and everybody fell all over themselves about how wonderful the guy was. Mm -hmm. 
to his credit, he was a very he was a very bright and articulate guy, uh, probably because he's a Catholic. Um, but uh, so uh, do, we know that there was wasp pushback after World War II with the Morgenthau plan. Yeah. It was the wasp. The Catholics had no power whatsoever at that point, certainly not in the Roosevelt administration. Uh, but it was people like uh, former President Herbert Hoover, who was a Quaker. If you're a Quaker in Philadelphia, you're considered a wasp. Um, there were people like George Patton. There were journalists like Frieda Utley, who wrote articles about the plight of the Germans in their bombed out cellars with no food. Uh, and the wasp elite basically shoved uh, Morgenthau out, out the door and created the Marshall Plan. Is is it possible? I mean, I'm asking you the question now. Is that possible? Is there enough? Is it people? Do Tucker Carlson and Colonel McGregor, they're both wasps. Uh, do they have a constituency? Are they speaking for a group of people? Are there is there a, a, a lot of unhappiness? in the State Department, or a little bit, or uh, what do you, what do you think? Let me, what do you, what's your opinion? You know it better than I do. I don't think that you have the institutional um, power to resist um, as effectively that you saw in the late 40s uh, the, uh, uh, to the Morgenthau plan. I think the, the, Jew, the Jews have successfully sort of taken over um, these institutions, uh, you know, the State Department. We have uh, uh, Janet Yellen as our Treasury Secretary saying we can afford yet another Jewish war. No problem, even though I think the U.S. Treasury bond rating is down to, uh, what, double A plus or something. <laughs> so, uh, it again, everything everything is for Israel. Everything is for the Jews. Um, you have a White House, which is, again, uh, last spring announced the national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. What that is, is well, it's a declaration of war on the United States because it's a war on free speech, war on free thought, war on critical thought, war on dissent, you know, legitimate dissent, legal dissent, which our system, our system is supposed to sort of uh, not just tolerate, but but incorporate, make it part of the system. We, we don't have that. Um, I think between 1967 and 1978, there was a Jewish coup, a silent coup. Yeah, in the United States. Um, you've talked about that. Um, Seventy-eight was a crucial year. Yeah, that's when Nelson Rockefeller and John D. Rockefeller died. They were representatives yeah. of the WASP ruling class. Uh, one of the institutions they took over is Harvard University. Yeah, Jewish University. There's no question. Uh, and it, it used to pride itself on its free speech. And now they, uh, when the Palestine, the, the people who supported Palestine, they were doxed by Jewish students who put their pictures on a truck and drove around the campus uh, encouraging harassment of these people or expulsion. Why not expulsion? The the ethnic cleansing of Palestinian sympathizers from Harvard University. Be because Harvard is now a Jewish institution, you're not going to be able to create the WASP cadre that used to staff yeah. groups like the CIA. That was Yale. I mean, Yale uh, was the basis for the State Department and the CIA. But th that's taken over as well. So how are these people supposed to be formed? If you go, let, let's take uh, in other institutions. Let's go back to like Philadelphia. 
like Bryn Mawr College, one of the seven sisters, they were infected with, a professor of mine went there and he said, because of their advocacy of birth control and stuff like that, it was a conspiracy to basically destroy the wasp ruling class. They did it to themselves to a large extent, but the Jews certainly helped them along at places like the University of Pennsylvania, uh, all, all of these elite institutions. They took them over, which meant that they took over the government that staffed them, and the the uh, WASP elite has been demoralized. I mean, we talk about, you know, okay, Tucker Carlson and McGregor, I think, are the, they're the exception to the rule. They both come from that background, but I don't think they represent large constituencies. And I, I think you're saying the same thing. So given this, look, there are, only, there are only two options here. Either the United States take control of Israel and the adults kind of kick the Jews out of the car and take over the steering wheel. Or if they can't do that, then uh, defeat, military defeat is going to be the only outcome. I think, I don't think, I think these are the only two options. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Ron Owens uh, this past summer wrote an article about the the Ivy League schools and the uh, effect of um, of affirmative action or quotas, uh, anti uh, anti white quotas at these universities. At the at the um, I guess the uh, the set asides or the the, the uh, programs there to enhance minority colored people. If you people of color came at the expense of whites not the expense of Jews. And it wasn't until the Asians started complaining that uh, you had this lawsuit. It was, I think, Asia, it was uh, uh, discriminating against Asians. Um, but uh, he, through his research, he found that the Jews were represented by like over, if you just based on merit and test scores, by over a thousand percent at these universities, meaning that they weren't the smartest, they were just getting in because of, because of, of ethnic nepotism. And these universities, uh, once they started permitting Jews, and, which they did, yeah, yeah, they, they, that's the big test and all that. Yeah, they did that. And they converted into institutions for their own interests, Harvard and Yale. And you're right; you, these these were institutions that decided who who would enter into the um, the political elite of the country, and they have since been taken over by, by Jews. So it serves Jewish interests. It's important that, that say that we have to look at the, sort of the politics of the country. The course yeah, is uh, the importance of ethnicity again it goes back to your thesis about about the triple melting pot, right? You know, and the three ethnicities, um, and uh, the wasp. We were told in the latter part of the 20th century that, that these things shouldn't matter. We had sort of civic nationalism. These these things that matter the most, but the Jews never really believed in that. They used sort of the uh, opportunity that liberalism gave to them to sort of um, infiltrate, take over these universities. But they don't practice any reciprocity in these areas, and they just take it over and use it for their own interest. And we see that. Now with these Jewish billionaires, or Ackerman, or Louder, uh, um, or what's his name? Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, the you know the guy who ran the Victoria's Secret. Don't know, but, but I'll take your word for it. You know, the billionaire who uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, benefactor. Oh yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about now. I forget his name now. And uh, names, they all they're all pulling funding from these universities because universities uh, either tolerated. Or set statements, sort of milquetoast, mild statements about the conflict. And now they want to pull all their money from these universities because uh, these universities are, are uh, you know, appear to be reflecting or, or respecting some uh, some degree of, of of free speech, which you think you think you 
you'd have on a university. <laughs> but it shows their 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 money, their their uh, their philanthropy comes at the at the price of free speech and free thought. You know, that's right. And uh, Alan Dershowitz, classic example, mm -hmm. Harvard professor, started off defending deep throat uh, pornography as uh, defended uh, covered by the First Amendment. And then ends his career uh, in standing next to Trump when he makes it illegal to criticize Israel on federal campuses or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it, they believe in free speech until they take over and then they don't believe in it anymore. Then they believe that uh, there is no such thing as free speech. Yeah, even at the UN, I think it was the um, the Secretary General of the UN gave a speech talking about how this this you have to understand these talks occur in the context of ongoing conflict, and now the Israeli ambassador is demanding that he resigns. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I saw that. You know, um, you and let then the into the United Nations, and they take that over too. Yes, um, the uh, then you have. Um, in Florida, Ron DeSantis just uh, banned pro-Palestine student groups on college campuses, yeah. claiming they support they support terrorism. They're just there's that sort of loaded term. It's terrorism if they strike if they fight back. It's not terrorism to a carpet bomb Gaza, you know. Right. So, so yeah, you know. to get back to the alternatives, I think Scott Ritter just said that uh, uh, the only thing that's going to solve. Israel, the Israel problem or the Jewish problem is military defeat. That's what he said. You mean like uh, Israel's overrun? Yeah, I think that's, isn't that what military defeat would be? Well, given the, the numbers, yeah, but I mean, they uh, <laughs> didn't what, they kind of create the situation for themselves? What's a possible scenario? Is uh, how Hezbollah and uh, the Turks uh, invade from the north? And occupy a third of the country, and then what are the what are the and then the, the they realize that uh, they've gone too far and they depose Netanyahu, and they try and come up with some type of peace plan or something. We go back to the sixty-seven borders. Something. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just speculating. This is all purely theoretical, but I'm just trying to come up with a possible scenario here, because the idea of defeat is unthinkable. That's unthinkable. That yeah. This is the problem when you've got people waging war, you know, who can't think of what what a possible outcome could be other than unconditional surrender. This is the thing that thwarted any type of peaceful solution in the Ukraine. They simply could not come to some type of agreement of, well, OK, this is uh, the status quo now and we should make some type of accommodation. They don't have that. That's not part of their vocabulary. And so as a result, people just keep on dying. So what do they understand? Unconditional surrender? They have to engage, have unconditional surrender? That's th this, is, this is where it's getting dangerous. Because I think that the United States, there's still people in the military who see that this thing can get out of control right now. And they're trying to contain it so that it doesn't get out of control which means don't go into Gaza, which means don't attack Iran the way Lindsey Graham is talking. Let's see if we can just contain it and maintain the status quo. But I don't think, I, I just think it's it's too far gone. I, I don't, they, the, the Arab world is not going to tolerate, first of all, the Iranians are not Arabs. 
So let's say the Islamic world is not going to tolerate the uh, genocide of the Palestinians in Gaza. I don't think they're going to tolerate that. It is interesting, again, uh, more irony or just double standard where Israel can threaten nuclear war over this, but we're told we're supposed to worry about Iran, Iran's alleged nuclear you know, program. Yeah, I just saw a video clip. I, I, it's amazing, an English journalist who actually asked questions. So there's some Israeli official there, and he says to him, uh, uh, well, if, if Israel has atomic weapons, why shouldn't Iran have atomic weapons? And the, the Israeli is dumbfounded. How could you ask a question like that? And then he and then he's stunned. He can't answer. And then the guy, the journalist, says, "Well, uh, is this justified by the Holocaust? Are you using the Holocaust to justify your nuclear weapons and your right to attack anyone?" And at that point, the Israeli says, "I'm terminating the interview." That's that's typical of what I'm talking about. You can't talk to people like this. Blinken can't talk. None of these people can talk. You know, they are so wrapped up in their own kind of neurotic self-righteousness that they get hysterical, you know, and they're probably going to rush out and pull a fire alarm if you continue talking in this way, or they're calling an airstrike or something like that. You can't talk to these people. And if you can't talk, there's no diplomacy. If there's no diplomacy, then they have to be defeated in war. It's that simple. But the problem for the United States is that, uh, at least for, for Americans, is that we don't have a benefit of the government that represents us. That's right. I don't see any in the higher echelons of power where – I just start in our today that many states now are increasing their – states are – in order to help Israel, they're increasing their bond purchases. So this is how entrenched and how – uh, uh, established Jewish power is in the United States, how subverted we are. Meaning, I think what's happening, orders going out for various state controllers to order the purchase of Israeli bonds to make up for, you know, to help bail Israel financially. And this has been going on for years. I read years ago how one another indirect subsidy Israel gets is they'll have a Jewish controller of Ohio, and he'll 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 buy more uh, Israeli bonds than than are, than is prudent, just to give the subsidy, even though it's a it's a bad deal for the, uh, you know, uh, for the uh, pension holders that those bonds are, you know, that that the that, that holds the, hold those bonds. It's just one of, one of many examples of how they get you know, how uh, they're they're subsidized through their network to the to the diaspora, and it's so much just accepted as normal. I even read somewhere today that there's a private. Oil reserve, petroleum reserve for Israel that's kept for Israel. <laughs> I mean, what is I mean, people know this, or there's a special deal with if there's a, a, a another country develops a more advanced weaponry system, the United States has to pay for an advanced weaponry system to give to Israel to to counter it. This is these are the things that have sort of developed over the years, become normalized because Congress, our political establishment, is completely co uh, uh, co corrupted by them. Yeah, well, you've got me totally depressed. Uh, so. <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to end this discussion right now because <laughs> I'm going to jump into the St. Joe River. It, it just makes no sense. I'm just looking at the map. Why would the United States, why would the world be obsessed with this little sliver of land in the Middle East? It's because of the influence that the Jews hold in the United States, which is the the global empire still. So it's, it's a strategic point they control, you know. 
and uh, there is no institutional there is no institutional um, opposition to this that I'm seeing at the national level. It's just like we're all whispering. It's a whisper there, campaign. There is no institutional. I can't think of one institution that would support. And I'm thinking especially of the Catholic Church, which was traditionally the bulwark against Jewish influence. You know, at, mm -hmm. throughout the, the whole history of European Christendom. Uh, that was the tra traditional bulwark, and they've gone completely over to the dark side after Vatican II. Mm -hmm. Sounds uh, uh, that, that I don't believe in any of those things, but the fact of the matter is that they have capitulated. We now have rampant dual covenant theology throughout the Catholic Church. Um, I went to give a talk to um, a bunch of seminarians. I'm not allowed to go on campus because I'm a bad person because of the very prejudices that we're talking about. And they told me that uh, basically that was, it, it was imposed on them. You know, they don't believe it. They have to meet, it's called the Nicodemus Society. They meet E. Michael Jones by night out of fear of the Jews. So they express their feelings there, but when they get back, they have to suppress them and hope they can get ordained and do something once they become priests. It's a horrible situation. But you're, I, but you're the one who brought it up because where name one institution? Well, that's the irony of it. I remember, like I, I already mentioned it, but the last spring, last May, when the White House held that conference to announce a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism, the fact that there was no institutional high-level criticism of that conference, any pushback means that the problem isn't anti-Semitism; it's philo-Semitism. There's yeah. too much. Jewish control of these institutions, the fact that they would, again, that was an open declaration of war on free thought and free speech because it, it called for what is it, a, a um, whole of government response <laughs> to anti and what and, and this goes back to talking about the Catholic Church's war or declaration uh, in 1965 uh, condemning all forms of anti Semitism without defining it. Right. Then we're placed in a situation where we're not even. <sighs> We not even uh, uh, psychologically will not be conditioned even to criticize Jews because of what it means. Yeah. Yes. And so it's it, exactly so, the situation that was described that Sun Tzu described, uh, which is basically if you don't know yourself and don't can't identify the enemy, you will lose every battle. So over this period of time, the Catholic, uh, the American Catholics have lost their identity, uh, and with losing their identity, they can't identify the enemy and so they're going to lose they're going to mm -hmm. lose the battle which is what they've done in the culture wars ever since uh, 1965 yeah and they're not aware of the, the covert psychological warfare that they they have been subjected to they can lament the cultural degradation decline that they see but they don't quite understand why it's occurring or who's doing it and of course then you, that's the case you lose because you can't marshal a, a uh, an effective response to it yeah. So has there been any pro-life response to the statement uh, that came out after Roe versus Wade that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value? Do we still pretend that Jews are our elder brothers in the faith after they announce this? Mm -hmm. Do we do we feel that uh, is it anti-Semitic now to oppose abortion? These are all these are all weapons that were put in the hands of the pro-life movement, and not one of them has made use of them. No discussion has, simply has not taken place. Yeah, a metaphor for the United States, I thought, was a 
was the Mark Hawk case in Pennsylvania. Right. Mark Hawk, where he was arrested by the FBI and brought up in federal charges for having, I guess, the audacity to prevent a crazy Jew from yelling obscenities into his child's face when he was up. When he was doing a sidewalk counseling house at an abortion clinic in, in Philadelphia. And the idea of being arrested for trying to prevent a Jew from yelling, yelling obscenities into your child's face is a metaphor for the country. Yeah. That's what we all face now. Yes. You know, you wrote this book, The Holocaust Narrative. Yes. I think I'm reading it, and you can read it chronologically, chapter by chapter, or skip from chapter to chapter. It's a very interesting read. A couple of chapters uh, you uh, covered the, um, the Anne Frank di diary case and also Elie Wiesel. And these are two, two, I guess, canonical pieces of the Holocaust narrative. And you deconstruct it. You kind of go into the, you know, into these things. That and a few other chapters. The Holocaust narrative, of course, the reason why we can't do this is because of the Holocaust narrative, meaning that there was this Holocaust has replaced the crucifixion in the West. Yes, that's what Abel said. Yeah, so basically to question the Holocaust is blasphemy, and we have blasphemy laws either de facto uh, in the United States, uh, you know, or actually uh, in actuality, like in Canada and through many European countries throughout the West. So if you question that narrative, you simply go to jail or your life is ruined. Um, and we're seeing the effect consequence of this because people are so afraid to criticize uh, Jewish power and its influence in the country, even though it's objectively, I mean, it's right clear, it's, it's right, very clear that it's creating a disaster, not only for the United States, but for the world, because no one has the guts, the courage, uh, or the backing to, to hold these people accountable because of the uh, Holocaust narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not illegal here either. It's it's illegal in Europe. I think it's eighteen countries in the world. Yeah. most of them in Europe. So it's not even illegal here, but uh, people are afraid to touch it. Or you know what happened to uh, to me during this when uh, uh, Patrick Coffin put on that Hope is Fuel conference and Mark Shea, uh, a convert who was a, a a member of the the uh, the Catholic Cheka. You know whose job is to go out and 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 uh, destroy people who uh, offend the Jews, uh, wade into all these people and and uh, Patrick Coffin to his credit stuck by his guns. He didn't throw me under the bus, but people were afraid to be associated with me. How are you associated with me? We're not even in the same room. But yet it was such a powerful force that someone like Janet Smith completely buckled under the pressure, mm -hmm. folded like a cheap suit. That shows you the power that these people wield, all because of the Holocaust. You know, but Mark Shea would end his diatribe with "Never again." <laughs> Give me a break, Mark. <laughs> well, yeah, but was that billionaire Ackerman who was blacklisting students at that? Uh, is it at Harvard? Yeah, they were blacklisted. Now, now this is nothing. New. I mean, I was there at the beginning of this in '92 when I gave that speech there. But the, the dean told me, you know, well, well, we, we'll allow you to speak. We don't agree with what you're saying. Uh, but those days are long gone. That was that was the blacks who got upset about me. Uh, it was a black dean who told me. But they, they just don't have the uh, they don't have the power, and they don't have the animus, the 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 hatred that the Jews had. And so it was mild by comparison. But now, uh, yeah. 
there's no there's no limit to what they will do to you. Well, it's because to show that they can't be trusted with any high level political power, culture, power, economic power if that's the way they behave. I think that's the conclusion we have to come to. Now, whether we'll be able to act on this conclusion, act accordingly, I don't know. I just don't know. It's it's your your I I kind of sense what you're sensing that there is no institutional pushback anymore. So how's it going to come about? Other than with through some catastrophic military defeat. That's the uh, I mean I hate to hold that out as a ray of hope, ha! But I don't see any other alternatives here. Yeah. It's uh, again, they don't practice any reciprocity. Uh, and when that's the case, you, they, they don't deal with you with any, they don't deal with us with any amount of, with any uh, degree of good faith. So, what do you do in a situation like that? You're, you're at an impasse politically. Um, you know, uh, to them, they don't practice tolerance. It's, that's just an excuse to get power. And once they're in power, then they lower the boom and oppress everybody. And you see that with these billionaires who supposedly are generous with their money. But their money is simply just an instrument of control, manipulation. You know, when there's a biblical precedent for this. So when the Hebrew people become totally corrupt and irreformable, uh, God sends the Assyrian army in and conquers them and destroys everything and sends them off into captivity. Is that what we're talking about here? I mean, I've talked about before. Ruslan is the Paicha Gottes. Russia is the scourge of God. Is that what's going on here? Uh, the empire is going to have to be broken down because it's irreformable. I think we're saying it's irreformable, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no more. It, it can't be tinkered with at this point. You know, so Don't that, uh, that moment of 1946, 47, where the wasp ruling class is going to come back and kick out their Yuda Morgenthal and reestablish a new foreign policy, which is not based on Semitic vengeance. I don't see it. Who's going to do it? Yeah, they're not there anymore. Um, you know, they, they stopped having babies. <laughs> on Russia. We have to depend on Russia. Well, yeah, you listen to the utterances or speeches, and if I can trust the uh, translations, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is the only man who presents himself as the only adult in the room in the situation, you know. Yeah, that's my sense too. You know, so the Lord works in strange ways. Yes, but he won't be mocked either. No, you're not. And there's plenty of that. That's nothing speaking of Israel is sort of the, I said this general, what was his name? General Brick talking about the Israeli Defense Force is simply dilapidated. They can't, they don't they haven't been training properly. They haven't maintained the army, which is why they're not an effective fighting force anymore. They're relying on air power, like the U.S. You know, they can bomb, 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 but they don't have anyone willing to go in and, and die for Israel anymore. They'll kill, as you say, for Israel, but they won't die for Israel, which means a lot when you're trying to wage a war like that. You know, going to the cities and like, like that. I think that's the situation, and so yeah. they're weak and they're vulnerable to some type of uh, defeat. I think. Yeah. I think. So well, like I said, I think you were born 1948. The year Israel was born. I was born 1967, the year of the Six-Day War, and uh, we'll come out upon close to 80 years after 1948, and so maybe Arad Barak's uh, you know, anxiety is well-founded. You know, I don't know in particular the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1985, right? <laughs> it happened a few years later, and maybe something like that, like uh, no one can imagine Israel no longer existing, but it has only existed since 1948.
That's right. And and uh, and well, the other side of the coin is true as well, that when the uh, Hebrews were punished, when they sent off into the Babylonian captivity, it was Cyrus who released them. Cyrus is not a Hebrew. He's doing God's will because God decreed that they would be punished for 70 years. So it's similar in terms of the time frame. Uh, it's also similar to the extent of communism. Yes. Communism was a Jewish kingdom. And that lasted for 70 some years. And then it disappeared. And, and yeah. shocked when it disappeared. Like a lifespan of a, of a, of a man. <laughs> That's exactly what I think uh, Ehud Barak is talking about. There seems to be something about this number, like 70 to 80 years, the lifespan of one man. And uh, they God gives them a chance uh, and they fail so miserably. And that at that point, God says, time is up. I have to factor this into my understanding of the situation. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard as individuals. I mean, we're given what? They say three score and 10 after that's all gravy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so it's hard as individuals to see these things unfolding and understand them. But even the United States, you know, you, roughly every 80 years, there's been a turning, right? You have the, what, the revolutionary period, civil war, uh, then World War II. From the founding of the country was the civil war. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Ehud Barak mentions this as the 80 having some type of mystical significance in his mind. Mm hmm. But it seems to be like a, a, a cycle with a, a three generations, a man's life, and things kind of run down. And they have to correct themselves. It's a historical cycle, you, you see, at least in the modern, you know. This is, this is the big yeah. mystery when you read Vico, who obviously had a, an understanding of human history, that there was a purpose for human history. Uh, but he said all empires are human creations and they rise and fall. Uh, but then there's the recorso, which is the return. But it's never, it's not clear, maybe because I, I'm not conversant enough with Vico, but is, are we talking about old age or are we talking about sickness? Are we talking about a death that is inevitable or can the kingdom be prolonged if it acts according to uh, moral principles? This is part of something that I can't answer at this moment. Yeah. Getting back to a healthy standard or something will prolong it. Yeah. Whereas you know, a cleansing of sorts occurs or something where you yeah. put off some. Well, uh, I think I've had you for over an hour. I said I'd have you for an hour. So I want to be a man of my word. Okay. I think we gave it a good go tonight. Thank you so much. I think so. I'll let you go. That's uh, E. Michael Jones, the editor of Culture Wars Magazine, culturewars.com. You can go there, get the books. Of course, the most recent is the Holocaust narrative. Order it from the from that from them and you you also get a signed copy right upon request i understand if you request it with your order okay excellent well thank you so much i'll let you go get some rest okay thanks tim take care bye-bye bye-bye